The reason that we're, we're fighting what we're fighting now is because of a larger injustice. The reason that these facilities are located in certain communities is not an accident. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. There is so much about our current system that is not working right. From transportation, agriculture, waste management, air pollution, energy generation and distribution, education, we see inequity and injustice almost anywhere we look, all of which are worsened by the climate crises. Wielding the power of the law to change these current realities and to advance justice and environmental protections is a powerful way to create and codify meaningful, long-lasting change. That is what drives Earth Justice, a nonprofit public interest law organization committed to preserving natural places and wildlife, advancing clean energy, and combating climate change. Today on the podcast, we talk with Adrienne Block and Kim Smysniak of Earth Justice, who are harnessing the power of the law to fight climate change. Block leads the organization's fossil fuel program, working to stop the buildout of fossil fuel infrastructure and fighting pollution in frontline communities. Smysniak heads the Clean Energy Program, where her team advocates for the advancement of clean energy and helps support energy efficiency programs. We talked with both of them about the roles the legal system play in addressing the climate crisis, creating long-lasting change in communities, and the real impact of widespread rollbacks of environmental regulations under the current federal administration. While many of these legal battles don't get the headlines they deserve, they're the foundation for implementing change at all levels and one of the most important forces behind the fight for a livable planet and just future on Earth. So, yeah, welcome. Uh, welcome both to Cooler Earth po Podcast. And we are so thrilled um, to have you on today to discuss one of the most interesting and fascinating areas of um, the fight against the climate crisis, which I think are, are the legal battles and the ongoing um, legislative ways in which we can kind of fight this and, and ensure a safe and, and equitable future for everyone. So maybe um, I wanted to start off, well, first asking how, how you both are doing. I know this has been a crazy time. Um, I know, Adrian, I think you're based in the West Coast. That's right. I'm, I'm here. I'm in Oakland um, and I work in the San Francisco office of Earth Justice. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how is lockdown going? Are you both still working from home? We're working um, just as much as before, um, but we're working from home. Um, <laughs> so it's so that feels different. A lot of video calls. 
Definitely. I think our lives have been kind of taken over by by Zoom. <laughs> Um, so yeah, once again, I really do want to appreciate it. I know we are super, super busy and I will hope to kind of keep this succinct, um, and go through kind of some of the questions that we wanted to go through. Um, so maybe if we can hear from both of you, um, if you want to get us started, Adrian, with, um, your career and your path, um, to getting to where you are today as an environmental lawyer and your work currently at Earth Justice. Um, well, great. Um, so I'm a managing attorney of the fossil fuels program at Earth Justice. And this program, it's a, it's a relatively new program, but we work to end oil and gas development and big new infrastructure projects that, that lock us into fossil fuels for decades to come. Um, but we do that in a way that really advances um, equity. That's really our, our goal. So to really center communities to protect health and um, to invest in their power building efforts as well. And the way that I came here um, is through environmental justice. So I worked for an environmental justice organization for about 10, 12 years um, as a lawyer um, and really working locally and thinking globally. Um, it was an amazing experience. Um, but one thing that I really saw was the way that communities all across the country are engaged in so many of uh, similar fights and that, um, and that we really need to, especially in, in the face of climate change, we really need to scale our efforts and really magnify the efforts to create um, a bigger movement. And so that's why, that's why I came to this job was really to have that opportunity to, um, to help scale and magnify those movements and to, to help um, strategy on the legal side of that. Absolutely. And maybe we can get into a little bit of that, of that background and how it influences your work now um, a little further along. Uh, but Kim, do you want to give us a little bit of background about, about yourself? Happy to. Really excited to be here today, Maria, and talk about how I came to work at Earth Justice as the managing attorney for the Clean Energy Program. Um, and I had a had um, I'd like to call myself a refugee from the Trump administration. I had most immediately prior to my work at Earth Justice been working as a climate change negotiator with the U.S. State Department, and I was a part mm -hmm. of the team that helped to negotiate the Paris Agreement, and had joined that team with the intention of really digging in on the the many years of work that we would need to implement that agreement and to halt and mitigate climate change. Um, and in the wake of the election, like many, I was devastated uh, and uh, knew I was leaving the government and knew I needed to go someplace where I would be able to find a space for optimism, something that would get me out of the bed in the morning uh, when so much of the news on climate change can seem so heavy and so difficult. Um, and when the position opened up at Earth Justice to work on advancing clean energy, I knew that was going to be the place where I could find energy and optimism, because honestly, the story about clean energy is one that notwithstanding that we are utterly lacking in federal leadership in this, in this moment, there is so much progress going on um, throughout the, the country, state by state. We're just seeing clean energy. It is affordable. It, 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 um, it doesn't have all the problems of pollution to fossil fuels. And so on its own steam, we are seeing clean energy 
um, grow rapidly. And with really strong legal advocacy and policy advocacy, we can just see that impact magnified across the board. Um, and so that really, that, that's the story of my journey, um, was looking for a place where I could have impact in a time when we're, we're just not seeing the federal leadership on climate change. Absolutely. And I can just imagine kind of that shift um, coming off of what seemed, I think, to all of us, um, putting us a path on on hope and international cooperation on this massive issue and then seeing a new administration come in. And that being one of the first things um, he did when in office was withdrawing from that. Um, that being said, I think it's fascinating that you're both joining us today because you're both working on kind of two sides of, of the very similar issue, right? It is the containment and the fight against fossil fuels and the expansion of fossil fuels. But then it's also what comes up the other end of, of that and what happens afterwards. And that is through clean energy and a way in which we can have a future that is not just clean, but is also safe and equitable for our communities. Um, and you're both doing that through the lens of the law. And that brings me kind of to my next question, which is what what are the ways and why is it that you see the law as such an, an intrinsic and inherent part in which we can do this work and safeguard um, some of these protections that we're seeking? Um, I can start. Um... I mean, the law really provides a structure. It provides a structure um, for our fights, among other things. And I know that, that Kim will have something even more fundamental to say than that, but it provides um, that ground um, and that leverage because it's something that um, is you know, respected, so to speak, um, regardless of of, of where you are, of your, your place, um, in, in this country. So, um, it, it's really a place where, where we can, um, where we can really kind of join together. Um, one thing that I really appreciate about the law and, and, and actually one of the, um, it can actually become a challenge as well is that, um, sometimes communities can rely too much on the law, um, to actually, you know, provide an answer, um, and provide change, but law doesn't change anything really. It, it just creates that framework or that floor. And so, in, I see my role as being a piece of that, a tool that the community can use to advance a larger effort. And you know, really recognizing that when you think about um, inequity, um, a community is not hit with inequity from one place. It's not just that there are polluting facilities or that there are arrests in the community. It's, it's all of those things. And so um, using the law in one of those places to also help galvanize energy and movement around all of those at one time. So I really see the law as a tool for communities and for, um, and for people to really um, create change um, in the society. And I'll just say that I couldn't agree with Adrian more that the law is a crucial tool for creating that change. And how does that play out in my work advocating uh, for clean energy? Um, well, our th theory of the case is that, you know, at the same time that we're opposing the burdens of fossil fuel infrastructure that we're fighting against those 
pollution and those health impacts and community impacts, we also need to be thinking about what are the investments that are going into infrastructure? Where are those decisions being made? Um, And a lot of those decisions are being made by um, state and federal regulators of the utilities who then invest in this large infrastructure. Um, And fundamentally, those decisions of those decision makers, those are guided, those are founded in the law. They're required to follow certain laws, they're required to follow certain procedures, um, and they have to have a certain basis for their decision making. And so as lawyers, we see that, that space in which those decisions are happening, those decisions that impact communities in very direct ways about what investments are we making? Is this clean energy we're investing in? Is this dirty fossil? Um, That's a space for where we can come in with our skill sets, our skills and advocacy in marshalling the law to make good arguments based in good facts uh, to, to create that change and that impetus for change. And so it becomes a key place where we can move those decisions, make our case as lawyers, in those proceedings that often look kind of like mini trials um, to to support the case for clean energy. Um, And so there the law really is a key tool, not the only one. There's also really important backdrop advocacy from the community, media outreach, uh, political opportunities for change. But the law is a key moment. It can create those sparks for change by having a case um, in which you're really centering how these issues play out for communities. Absolutely. And I think you just hit on what I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about next and what that is the role of civil action and and the groundswell of support that we have seen in the recent years and most recently in the recent couple months from people, from communities really rising up to demand better, demand better from the political system and from the justice system. And I'm curious how you both think about that in, in your day-to-day work. How does this kind of civil action and massive movements for change complement the legal work that is happening or vice versa? One of the main campaigns we're really focused on right now is the petrochemical build-out that's happening in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's so fascinating about it, you know, from a climate perspective, too, is it kind of circumvents our efforts to um, kind of create a clean energy future um, because you're using oil and gas for something other than energy. So um, it's something that, that, we're, that we're quite focused on. And um, petrochemicals, you know, they kind of hit, they have a really huge life cycle, you know, from the wellhead, you know, all the way to incineration or plastic waste in, in our waters. And where we're really focused, the team that I'm on, is on petrochemical infrastructure, which is primarily being built in low-income communities and in low-income communities of color, primarily um, in Louisiana um, and also Texas and in the Ohio River Valley. Um, And one of the communities that we've been working with the most is is Rise St. James, which is... um, a group, a frontline group in St. James, Louisiana, and they are fighting the Formosa petrochemical facility there. It would be massive. It would um, emit almost 14 million tons of greenhouse gases a year, which is the equivalent to three and a half power, coal-fired power plants. Um, but it would also release a lot of toxic pollution. It would be the third largest emitter of ethylene oxide 
which um, EPA has recognized as a cancer-causing um, toxic um, in the whole country. So this is a massive you know, fight. And this group came together around this facility fight. So they didn't exist prior to this proposal by Formosa to build this massive 14-facility complex in their town. Um, and since then, they've just been engaged in so many other efforts and are really building power throughout the region, throughout Cancer Alley, you know, working with other parishes, um, organizing marches that, that run the entire 85-mile stretch between Baton Rouge and New Orleans in Cancer Alley, an area that's been hit so hard um, f- for so long. So, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing that. We're seeing people really rise up and working in their communities, but also going to D.C. and working on, on the changing the laws um, and also reaching out to other mm-hmm. communities that are fighting Formosa and other parts of the country and, um, and in the world. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing groups in Taiwan, you know, stand up and, and fight for communities in St. James. So, um, and I think one of the things that we do as an organization is we really help to amplify, um, efforts in communities. So I just, there's a great, um, opportunity for change, um, in, you know, for movement building, um, through, these projects that are subject to permits. Um, and they really kind of highlight actually um, the oil and gas industry and their, their social license really to, to, to pollute and to really push climate change beyond what we can imagine. So hopefully that answers your, your question. Definitely. Um, and I think that's also part of what, what you mentioned there. It's it's the need to change the laws and the systems within the laws operate. And so um, I want to ask and, and the role that this is why the role of groups like Earth Justice is so crucial and so critical, being able to provide legal assistance and legal work that otherwise might be inaccessible to a lot of the folks trying to do this work on the ground. And so my question goes, I, th- I guess, um, what what are the ways in which you see the need for more of that? We know that we are opposing or, or the opposition to this is, you know, the most profitable corporations in the history of the world and the ability that they have to not only lobby, but hire counsel and effective counsel that are very often times those on the receiving end of marginalization and the receiving end of pollution and the consequences of these projects are maybe unable to access. So how do you think through those barriers and obstacles and how do you think Earth Justice is playing such a critical role in, in addressing those? So you're you're right to point out how asymmetric and how huge the barriers are for a small community group versus a really well-funded, whether it be uh, you know a fossil fuel company or whether it be a massive utility. That access mm-hmm. to power, that access to legislators, um, we've you know recently have seen blow up across the country multiple scandals among utilities in which um, back backroom deals in which in order to keep dirty coal running uh, for a utility that makes profit on that, they're able to move tens of millions of dollars into um, you know shady offshore accounts 
in order to get the favors they need from legislators. How do you, as a small community, go up against that kind of untoward influence, um, even when it's not unlawful and even when there's not corrupt bribery at the center of it, there's still this fundamental problem of access to powerful decision makers. Um, one, I will say, I think the, the law is helps level the playing field. When you bring a court case, you force someone onto your playing field and they have to deal with you. They have legal obligations to show up and respond to a complaint. And that can be very powerful for a community to bring to the table some powerful interests that otherwise may not want to bargain with you, have ignored your community systemically, uh, failed to provide to you, and don't want to hear how they've been, they're impacting your community. Um, and so I think there's a tremendous value to organizations that can provide the expertise, um, the know-how to navigate legal proceedings, but also to advise what are the ways that you can have access if there are um, you know, legislative sessions going on. What does that look like to make sure that we're supporting our partners so their concerns are a part of the consideration, that they're at the center of things? And sometimes that advocacy may look like knowing that that access is not going to be fair, and sometimes you have to make the good trouble where you're going to agitate and get some notice for your um, for your clients, where they're they're going to be out talking to the press and getting attention outside of the formal proceeding. Um, and I'll give a concrete example. Um, our Florida uh, office had been working with um, LULAC, a community, uh, a Latino group in Florida, to advocate for energy efficiency while the utility was trying to eliminate those programs that were tremendously valuable to many communities in Florida. Um, and they wanted to participate directly in ongoing public hearings. And the commission, the the regulator who has control over the decisions, was siding with the utility and saying they didn't want to hear from those communities. Um, and so we had to get creative as lawyers and say, well, we'll have um, uh, a little um, uh you know, discussion with the, the press over here um, outside as the, the hearing is ongoing, where you can hear from actual members of the community and how this will impact them, because those voices should be at the table. And if they're not there, you use everything at your tool at your disposal to make sure that those concerns are heard and elevated and get covered and, and uh, politicians and decision makers are aware of them. Absolutely. So yeah, maybe we can uh, keep moving. And I wanted to, if you are able to share um, some of the most rewarding or impactful cases that you have been involved with or, or seen through, I think sometimes, or at least for the general public, we can hear about very high profile court cases or decisions that happen or lawsuits, um, most recently against the biggest fossil fuel companies. But Perhaps it's difficult to understand the significance and the long-term impacts and ramifications those decisions are going to translate into. Um, so maybe I wanted to hear from both of you of what are some of the projects that you've worked on where you can say and see this is really going to have a long-term positive and, and significant effect um, for, for the country and the world. So I want to start by talking about a case that's probably not the biggest case we've ever won, but I just think really speaks to how 
crucial in this time and moment. Some even small advocacy can be small scale because it's not covered by national press, um, but it has such a huge impact on everyday people's lives. Um, and we have my team, two fantastic young attorneys, have been working in Michigan uh, to fight for energy efficiency programs that go to benefit um, low income uh, cons- customers. And um, really important context to understand about how important this case is, is that um, in this particular area of Michigan, which is served by a utility called DTE, um, there is tremendous challenges of affordability for many DTE customers. So something uh, close to a quarter of their customers face energy costs that are more than double what is considered affordable. And those are figures that predate our current economic challenges. And I suspect those numbers are much worse. Um, and, right. and what does that look like when you know the lack of access to energy efficiency for many of these low income customers, it means that their homes, you know, these homes that have the highest energy burden are often the most inefficient. They have old appliances, they have drafty windows, the the housing is is less comfortable and less safe. Um, And this work in Michigan was really motivated by um, and inspired by a report by the NAACP, which is called Lights Out in the Cold. And it looked at this problem of electricity shutoffs across the country, electricity shutoffs because, you know, households can't afford to pay their bills. And they recognized that is a human rights issue. Um, If in the middle of winter or a scorching summer, you don't have access to electricity, that has real human costs. Um, And so in this case, our team, our attorneys worked with Sierra Club's Environmental Justice and Community Partnerships Program to ensure that that utility... Um, would put in place an energy efficiency program that would target those customers who are most at risk of facing electricity shutoff due to failure to pay bills. Um, And so we were ultimately tremendously successful in this case um, to make sure that not only did we make sure that we're we're targeting those investments to customers who otherwise would be ignored by, you know, traditionally by these programs, but also to grow the size of those programs so that we're, we're putting more into those energy efficiency programs. And then also tracking to make sure that we're able to see the rewards of those investments and going forward to make a case for continuing to grow those kind of programs. Um, and while that's maybe small in scale, when you look at what's going on across the country in this moment, we need more of that kind of work as so many households are feeling the acute effects of the economic crisis. They are not able to pay their bills. And at some point, the moratoriums that have been in place against shutoffs um, across the country are are going to end. Um, And that's an opportunity to make sure that we're both improving the lives of of people um, in in their homes and addressing these tremendous economic impacts. Absolutely. And I think that is that is so crucial. And it's something that often does not get get discussed enough when terms of solutions is things such as reducing the burden of electricity costs, not just through an entire overhaul and clean energy, but through things like energy efficiency and making those investments that are so necessary, not just 
for working families, but also um, for the overall reduction uh, in emissions. So thank you so much for for sharing that. And um, I did also want to touch on on the moment that we're living through, right? It's not just a a devastating pandemic and the lockdowns and the ensuing economic um, and jobs crises that we're living through in the country and around the world. Um, But I'm curious to hear how you both believe it's impacted the current work um, and going into the future? How are some of these acute moments um, where inequities and where real injustice has been brought to light? So obviously for all of us to see, how do you see that impacting the legislation and your work moving forward? Uh, Maybe Adrian, if you want to get us started. Sure. Thanks, Maria. Um, One um, is that we're really seeing the inequities just so much more saliently. Um, Mm -hmm. Early on in the COVID pandemic, um, St. John's Parish in Louisiana had kind of the highest death rate of COVID in in the country. Um, And I think people were really able to see you know, the relationship between air pollution and vulnerability to COVID and to, um, to death from COVID. And, um, you know, that was happening at the same time as we were seeing, you know, killings of, of Black folks and really being able to tie, see the relationship between Black Lives Matter and all of, all of these other um, inequities. So that, that's one piece of it. And, and then the other that hits really directly on the work as well is that it's hit the oil and gas industry. Um, it's been, I, I would say, devastating to the oil and gas industry. Um, and really the only way that it's going to be able to find its way back insofar as it could at all is um, through being bailed out. Um, and every day we're seeing new, new threats um, to the oil and gas industry, which, which is, of course, is a, a very good thing. But, you know, they need the price of oil to go up to $50 a barrel by a certain amount of time. Um, so they're, they're being hit really hard. And so this is an important moment um, to take a hard look and to, to really make the most of the laws that we have um, to ensure that they have their proper place um, in, in this society and in this world, which, um, from, which they haven't had to do, um, in the past. So this is a huge moment when we really have an opportunity to, um, to put things in their place. Right. Yeah. Kim, go ahead. Uh, so, you know, our team and Earth Justice, we've been, laser focused on this need to focus on energy justice issues and the um, disparate impacts of the lack of access to clean energy benefits and the disproportionate harms of fossil fuel. And so it's been an ongoing priority for our team and seeing the, um, the COVID impacts, um, you know, land so hard on communities of color and devastate, um, communities at the same time that we're seeing 
just the uh, backlash against what we still see as such fundamental racist institutions in society, it really just you know puts a hyper acute focus on the importance of that work that we've already been moving forward. And it's a, such an exciting time to see that you know we've known this is important, but now we see so many other parts of larger society recognizing and calling out the importance of anti-racist work and building out, for example, more legislative proposals that center equity in the response to climate change, um, seeing more widespread consideration across institution after institution. Do we need to think about environmental justice components of how we do our work? Um, and that's exciting. It gives us a window of opportunity as advocates to say, we've already been working in this space and we have some ideas and let's move on them. Um, use that kind of national mobilization as a time to make sure that we're elevating this good ideas um, on how to how to really address some of these these deep systemic challenges that we're facing. Certainly. And I think you you both kind of said this and it's this recognition that we can no longer claim to care about just one thing. Right. You can no longer advocate for environmental justice without taking into account and centering racial justice while you do that as well. And it's been fascinating to watch this kind of reckoning within the environmental space and the activist space as well with how maybe non-inclusive many of us have been in the past and the need to really understand these issues comprehensively. Likewise, if you are somebody who cares about housing justice or racial justice, it's now been very obvious that those things are also so deeply intertwined um, with the environmental and climate crisis that that we're living through, through air pollution and climate impacts and heat waves and so many other things that are happening. Um, and I, I did also want to talk to you both about maybe the complexity of these issues, right? Because as we see them and understand them, it's, it's also important to recognize that it can be quite overwhelming uh, for people who maybe don't understand or are not in this day to day and the kind of public understanding of these things and these court challenges and legal battles. How does that play into how you think about your work? This need to communicate the the depth of issues that we're living through. I think the need to communicate is really essential to, to winning in the end. Um, and there are really difficult, you know, aspects to, to the cases that we bring. So a lot of the cases um, on the team I'm on, we're, we're bringing cases under the Clean Air Act um, and through the Clean Water Act, um, you know, which can be complex and, and maybe not even that interesting to a lot of people. But I think even that can be broken down in really, in, in really simple ways. You know, so for instance, in, in St. James, the Formosa facility would... Um, kind of exceed the national level, you know, for certain types of pollution. And that's, that's easy to understand. But there's this other piece of knowing that we're working in, in our lane in the sense of focusing very deeply on environmental statutes, but at the same time, we're really supporting campaigns and not just cases. So we're recognizing that our mm-hmm. cases come in the context of kind of this larger um, 
you know, set of issues. So there's not, there's not really such a thing as, you know, this justice or that justice. There's just one justice. I think, I think most of us know that there's just one justice. And so that when we are engaged in our cases, we are alive and awake to all of the other pieces and that we're actually able to some extent to incorporate that into the cases that we're bringing. So when we're telling the story of our Clean Air Act case, it includes all of these other components. It includes other components and that we're actually able to, um, you know, to, to advise our clients on issues that are um, still, you know, environmentally related, but are a little bit bigger than the case that we're working on. So when we're communicating, we're communicating the issue in the community and kind of how that connects to larger issues. And we're not just focusing on the legal issue in that case. And I think as we've spoken today, I've, you know, I've focused even less on the law and, um, you know, that we're really moored in that um, because I've wanted to really emphasize the fact that the change that we're trying to make um, is broader than that. And we recognize, um, we recognize that. We recognize injustice and the ways that the reason that we're, we're fighting what we're fighting now is because of a larger injustice. The reason that these facilities are located in certain communities is not an accident. So I would say for our work, um, education is a key component. There is a huge demystification that has to happen at the first level, whether it is, you know, to the average person who honestly, you know, you know, you get a clean energy or a bill for your energy, but you don't mm-hmm. know the structure that's behind that. You don't, you know, the name of your utility, but do you know that that utility then buys its power off this regional market um, that that's run by a separate entity? You know, the average person doesn't grasp the complexity of that system. And so if you need change to happen somewhere upstream in that process uh, and the, and you know, the average person's not even aware that those decision makers exist, that's a huge gap. That's a space in which advocacy is not happening because members of the public who are directly impacted by those decisions aren't even aware of that decision-making process. So a huge piece, you know, even setting aside the, the aspects of the law or the technical issues we deal with is just understanding where are these decisions being made and how do they eventually impact you and result ultimately in the difference between having this polluting infrastructure and facing the real impacts of climate change or not, um, because it's it's such a complex system. Um, so often, you know, one of our areas for engagement, whether it's to uh, community groups who we could be working with or whether it's to um, legislators um, and other uh, potential influencers in this space, is to first just explain um, how are all of these different entities connected and how do these different entities then result in ultimately what we see happen on the ground? Right. And I think they are so complicated by design, right? They are designed so that the regular people don't understand them because I think if more of us did, the, the outrage of how so many of the both inefficiencies and inequities and just like outrageous ways and polluting ways that our our energy systems work, um, then there would certainly be much more broader calls uh, for change and outrage around this. Um, 
And maybe with some of the final time that we have here and speaking a little more about kind of the nefarious aspect of the people working to keep the status quo in place and keep these systems operating and, and being profitable for the very few that they have been. Um, one thing that's looming over kind of all of us this year is the federal election. Um, and a lot of what we have seen over you know, the past four years really of this current administration is massive rollbacks um, of critical environmental policy and legislation that took decades um, to be put in place. Most recently, the National Environmental Policy Act, um, which is quite literally stripping away community input into some of these very critical decisions for for the future and the protection of our homes and environments. And so I just want to hear from both of you as much as you can kind of share what has been the real impacts um, of all of these rollbacks and of a pretty hostile administration that is actively working to kind of stack the courts with judges and his cabinet with, with people and kind of lobbyists who don't necessarily agree with a lot of the things that we have talked about um, in this past half an hour? Uh, well, I will say for uh, my team, the impact of the rollbacks and the effort to put in place uh, appointees who are often industry insiders, that has all resulted in a tremendous amount of work for us. And it has been an exhausting four years. We've been, I, I just have such um, admiration for the members of our organization and for our partners and clients who have been tireless in showing up in battle after battle. And it is, it is a huge amount of work to bring a lawsuit in order to stop these rollbacks. It is uh, countless hours of people's time to, to do, take all the steps to f stop those and reverse them. And the story is also important that we've had tremendous success in those rollbacks, um, the, in fighting those rollbacks. The, the, you know, the, the deck is kind of stacked in the favor of the government. Um, and I can say that as someone who is a former government lawyer who used to defend at the Department of Justice these um, environmental rules that were put out by agencies. And the law is such that most of the time the courts are supposed to leave intact the decision of an agency because it's the expert. Um, mm -hmm. And yet we see, even though in other administrations, the normal course would be that courts would not reverse the, the rules that are issued by these agencies. Earth Justice and others have been having huge success rates. Um, and I think we, we have a, um, a tracker, I'm sure, that keeps track of the precise percentage of wins. But it's a phenomenally high compared to what would happen in a normal um, normal course of administration decision making, um, and so that's the positive story. Is that with the power of law, you absolutely, with hard work and dedication and huge partnerships and movements, you can win. I completely agree with Kim that um, that the effect has been to keep us extremely busy, um, and that we've had tremendous success. Um, but you know, at a time when we really need to slow climate change, um, instead we're having to um, sort of work extra hard to stop, you know, major buildouts and to stop these rollbacks. Um, and you know, most recently um, there's an attempt to roll back the methane rule, and methane is you know a, partic a particularly potent greenhouse gas. Um, and 
the um, the administration and is trying to to roll that back so that um, so that you know we can have tremendous flaring at, at at oil well sites. So we're really at a time when we really need significant change in one direction. We're trying to beat off um, climate in, impact increases and in others. Um, and then there's also the equity, you know, issues that come up in the NEPA context, the National Environmental Protection Act that you mentioned, and particularly um, on cumulative impacts. Um, so we're, you know, we're definitely concerned about that, um, but we, you know, kind of continue to fight because um, there was a little bit of a of a door opened. Um, and we're just continuing to fight these rollbacks and we're doing, we're doing a great job. And, and we're also at the same time, you know, fighting the build out. So it's just keeping us really busy. <laughs> and we are so, so grateful um, for the work that, that you do every day and all of your colleagues do absolutely every day and, and work that is so critical, especially um, right now. I can concur. It has been an exhausting four years and I can only imagine what that's looked like um, for for you both. So I can't believe we are kind of at the at the end of our time, but I just want to say I appreciate you sharing um, your work and your stories with us today, and I'm very much looking forward to to releasing this to to our audience and seeing um, kind of sharing all of this wonderful information. Maria, thank you so much for your work. This is a, a great show, and um, and thanks for inviting us. Thank you, Maria, and thank you to all of your listeners for caring about climate change. We're all in this together, and I appreciate you. Absolutely. I hope you both have a wonderful rest of your day um, and week. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is... C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 